This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we enter into our verse-by-verse journey through the Book of Romans, looking at Paul's introductory section as he addresses this diverse group of believers. Yep, we turn our attention to Romans, the letter that is quoted to me more than any other letter in the Bible. So, (laughs) let's, let's do this thing. I used to have such a... You probably still sense a little disdain. I don't have a disdain for Romans anymore because the proper interpretation of Romans is amazing. It's going to go really nicely alongside of what's going on in Galatians. And yet it is different. It's not the story, uh, the letter written to the Galatians. So I really love Romans now. I used to have a disdain for Romans because of the overemphasized focus that evangelicals had on this book. But we're, we're going to enjoy walking through it. So maybe contrast the audience of Galatians to the audience of Romans. Galatians uh, is a, kind of a backcountry, uh, ultra-conservative, like we don't want to be bothered by anybody. They're away from all of the high Roman whatever. Yep. What, so. And they're dealing with a very specific problem in in Galatia. And that is they have a bunch of Gentile converts who are not welcome. That's not going to be the case in Rome. Um and they're wanting to convert. That's not what's happening in Rome. So the situation is very, very different in Galatia from Romans. And yet the gospel is still the same gospel. The point of Paul is still the same point. His heart is still the same. Context is radically different. Uh, but before we jump into that, let's go ahead and read the first few verses. Let's just get started in the introduction here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a long sentence. Yeah. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. There's actually a ton of stuff in there. I don't want to start pulling it apart. There's amazing things that are written about it. Um, while I While I am here, I am going to... Uh, recommend a series that we did here at our church, Brent. We preached on a whole series um, uh, on Romans. We basically went through it uh, chapter by chapter and preached through it. And we just had some really dynamite stuff that came out of um, me and some of my colleagues. And and together as a team, we really did a cool thing, I think. So recommend that. It'll give you some more if you're, if you're like, I want more. I want more Romans than what you're giving me in the podcast. Well, watch those and you'll get some more Romans. So we'll have that in the show notes there. All right. and, and we do have one, three, four, five, six, seven episodes coming on Romans, so it'll be a pretty good chunk. But, yeah, we are but there is even more available if yeah. you're interested. Absolutely. People love Romans. Get them some Romans. All right, there we go. So as usual, we do want to talk about some context, Brent. We've mentioned before the debate about when to date all these books is always a lively one. And so I'll, I'll try to keep my horse historical ties relatively loose here. As referenced in Acts 18... The Emperor Claudius has issued an edict somewhere around A.D. 51 that expelled all Jews from Rome. What seems clear by the writing of the New Testament is that there was a significant and substantial community of believers in Rome from a very early date. And probably that's because of the story of Pentecost. If you remember, we were told in Acts that there were uh, Jews from Rome there, a significant bunch of Jews. So they went back and started this Jewish community. Uh, welcoming Gentiles, as the New Testament church does, in Rome. 
So as we've seen all throughout our study of Acts and now Galatians, the safe assumption is to say this is primarily a Jewish community with Gentile believers being included in the family. The Edict of Claudius changes the physical demographic of the church in Rome. The church goes from being a large, vibrant Jewish community to being a community of new Gentile believers, because all the Jews have to leave town. We're talking 15 to 20 years after Pentecost. Yeah, yeah. Ballpark. Yep, absolutely. So not only would the demographic makeup of the church change severely, but the leadership and spiritual direction of this body would have struggled as well. Like, Brent, how do you, what do you assume, do you assume this church, and we don't know, like this is speculation, but do you think this church was mostly Jewish with some Gentile folks in it? Do you think it was mostly Gentile with some Jewish folks in it? Uh, I mean, it was probably starting to swing more Gentile as right. the years went on. Sure. Um, but maybe, obviously, the natural growth would be to start small and then you slowly get bigger and bigger. So it's probably very heavy, uh, heavily Jewish in the beginning with a few Gentiles and that, that slowly shifted over time. So maybe 15 to 20 years in, like there are quite a few Gentiles, but right. probably and a lot of them are newer to the faith at that point. Sure. And the leadership, what do you think uh, the leadership is? Uh, I mean, kind of obviously, what do you assume the leadership? Well, the leadership of? would probably be very Jewish at that very point. Very Jewish, right? This this community, this Gentile community is really leaning on the Jewish leadership because they're being included into this Jewish story. And now all that Jewish leadership, all that Jewish presence goes away. So they would have they would have struggled a lot. Um, having lost the text, because we don't have a printing press, Brent, so everybody is not bringing their Bible to church. Uh, and that text was the role of who? And that was the Jewish part. Yeah. They were the ones that had the text memorized. They had, and even if the Gentiles like immediately started trying to get the text in them, they didn't have the text in them in the way that the Jews did. We've looked at before in session three, like they had the text in them. So they lost the text on some level and their teaching of the narrative of God these Gentile believers would have struggled. They didn't have that pedagogue that we talked about in Galatians. So struggle as they might, they would have also survived. And later, however, when the political ch- climate changes and this Jewish population returns home, we have an interesting situation within the church in Rome. We're, we're now talking five, six, seven years later. So after the Edict of Claudius, they've had some years on their own. They probably figured out a new rhythm. And now all the Jews come back home. And you can imagine what kind of like dilemma that creates. Who's in charge now? Did, did Claudius die or how did this end? That's a good question. And I'm not prepared to actually give a definitive answer on that. But yes, I believe it was his death and the new emperor uh, lifted the edict. I believe. Don't quote me on that. I've been wrong about some other things in the past. Well, at least something significant changed for, for the Jews to come back. Right. So now these Jews come back and now we got to wrestle with who's in charge. How do we reestablish a relational understanding of spiritual direction and membership? Do you, do you suppose maybe some new Gentiles came in over the course of that six, seven, eight years? Oh, probably. Yeah. You're right. And they're, and now they, they meet this whole new group of people and they're like, who are you? But, oh, these are the people that used to be like, they used to be the, the foundation, like the bulwark of our church. So I'm sure Gentile believers are far from excited about just simply letting everyone back in and, and submitting to the leadership. I, like, I'm assuming the Gentiles aren't just like, oh, yeah, well, here's your seat. I kept it warm for you. Welcome back. They're human, just like you and I. So with this in mind, we're ready to turn our sights to the letter of Romans. Paul is writing to a church that finds itself splintered and fractured between two dominant groups, Jew and Gentile. For the Jewish believers, they have already had to struggle through a new theological understanding of sonship regarding who are children in God's family. This new tension in Rome is not going to help that learning curve. It's going to challenge it. The Gentiles have found a new sense of confidence and an identity of their own 
outside of the narrative of the Jewish people. Both of these things will present the challenges that Paul is going to be addressing here in Romans. This is the context, uh, Brent, of Rome. Romans, the letter of Romans. It's, a, it's not actually a theological treatise to explain to us how one gets saved. That's a tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic statement. But we, we treat Romans like it's this, theolo- this theological treatise to talk about salvation. It's not. It is a letter addressing a diverse body of people that's having some real diversity fits. Like, they're, they're, what do we do now? Like, this whole body is, like, upset. So before Paul gets down to business, he has to address a church he is deeply in love with. Paul has always had a fascination with Rome. So go ahead and give me the next paragraph there, Brent. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit is in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome." So Paul has longed to spend time with the Romans, and he laments writing a letter without having met so many of them. He's never been able to be there. He talks about his time spent with the Gentiles and his calling to the people of Asia and Asia Minor, to the Greeks and to the barbarians, those tribal people in regions like Galatia. Paul then turns his attention to the climate to which he writes and begins to hint at the things to come in his letter. Go ahead and give me the next little bit, Brent. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All right, so so Paul references this righteousness of God, this righteousness from God, that's revealed from faith. So there's a righteousness that Paul's going to be talking about here that doesn't come from our abilities. It doesn't come from our obedience. It comes from, there's a righteousness that transcends that. Paul's going to be talking about, Paul is anxious to put the power of the gospel to work in the setting of the conflict in the Roman church, to unite everyone who believes. This everyone who believes business would certainly be a reminder to those Jews listening about God's plan to be a blessing to all nations, to give them full membership in God's household. However, to those overly confident Gentiles, he also reminds them whose story it is, as the gospel and the power is first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Paul reminds us it's only when this diverse body is held together that we see the righteousness and the goodness and the graciousness of God revealed. It's by faith in these promises that such a reality is realized. It is by seeing this faith that others are inspired to their own faith and faithfulness, as we looked at in Galatians. Because to every age, to every situation, to every point in history, there is a challenge and an invitation to trust the story. So based on this proper understanding of the context of Romans, the opening chapters of the book make much more sense. So looking at this complex situation in Rome, Paul addresses a church with three dominant groups, which are somewhat different than the three groups of Galatia. In Galatia, we had which three groups, Brent? We had we had the Jews or the brothers. Yep. We had the God-fearing, no, 
we had the children of Abraham, the, the Jewish converts. Yep. And then we had the God-fearing Gentiles. Perfect. Right? Absolutely. And here, in this letter, in this context, we have a different three dominant groups. Not that those same groups don't exist in Rome, but Rome's dealing with a different problem and a different relational dynamic. So, and again, this is why context to every single letter, every single letter, Brent, we need to ask, what is the context? Because context drives, we can't just systematize Paul's theology. Paul's letters don't work that way. Paul's writing to different contexts and he'll say different things because the people he's writing to are different. So Paul um, uh, is writing to this church. This church in Rome is going to have new Gentile converts who are just coming out of their pagan ways. So brand new Theosebes. They will also have Gentiles who've been following this gospel for quite some time and have been transformed in their walk. So they're going to have like mature Theosebes. And then there will be Jews who once formed the core of this believing community, including proselytes. So we've got brand new Gentiles, we have believing Gentiles, and we have Jews. Paul addresses all three groups in his opening three chapters. Uh, and and I, I thought about how I wanted to address these chapters in a podcast. And we may have a long podcast there. We're going to see how well we can get through this because it's really one big conversation. And to break this up is going to be detrimental to us seeing the whole package as it needs to be seen. So this discussion is full of hotly debated details, theories surrounding the nuances of what Paul is saying. Is he building a false argument against the worldview he's speaking to? Is it a satirical faux dialogue? Like some some scholars have really literally suggested that, and there's some good points there. Is he speaking more literally? Is he making an argument just as it uh, as it reads on the surface to us? These questions are 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 represented in a lot of the newer scholarship. I'm not going to try to settle some of those arguments here. I'm going to let those be because I don't think it changes the point. This doesn't change the bulk of Paul's arguments in the first few chapters, nor his conclusions. Paul's point is that all of humanity deals with the same brokenness. Whether the group is submitted to the law or not, the same brokenness is present in all of us. We all try to live by a law of some kind. We all have a measuring rod, Brent. We all have a ruler. We all have a spiritual measuring stick. And no matter which law we submit to, we all fall short. This insecurity is the very condition to which the gospel attempts to speak. So very first, Paul speaks to those corrupt pagans who have given themselves over to a Hellenistic worldview. And we could review Hellenism if we needed to. We're not going to do that in this podcast, but we've talked about Hellenism before. Uh, but the driving premises behind their worldview was, give me Hellenism in one sentence, Brent. Hellenism is this, uh, this system of, of life where everything is good for you. Like if you will follow the, the rule of, of Greece, you will, you will have everything that you need taken care of for you. Right. That man is the measure of all things. They have replaced God as the measure of all things. They've replaced the God ruler, the God measuring stick with themselves. I am now the measuring stick. I'm now the ruler. Like Pythagoras literally said, man is the measure of all things. Like he's now, he's the one that gets to decide. So go ahead and and pick up where we left off. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. That last verse, Brent, is almost like an exact definition. Like that's, that is the description. Give me that last verse one more time. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged God as the measuring rod for, and they replaced it with man and created things as the measuring rod. That's an exact description of the culture of Hellenism. Paul says that they try to live by their own new law, this wonderful Greek new uh, um, enlightenment, this, this new understanding of the measure of all things. Uh, but this doesn't work. And Paul's going to point out how their own laws, their own measuring stick is inherently dysfunctional. So I'm not going to skip the next two paragraphs, Brent. So let's dive into these next two little tidbits and we'll unpack this briefly. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. All right. So here's this passage. We're not going to skip it. We're going to deal with it. Paul has just gotten done literally defining Hellenism. What he is speaking to is a pagan Hellenism. The two paragraphs that follow are exact descriptions of how that pagan reality lived itself out. Now, it is foolish if we take those two paragraphs, jump 2,000 years in the future, and then apply it to our understanding of some of those same words. The one thing here that Paul is not talking about, now calm down when I say this, everybody, take a few deep breaths. The one thing Paul is not talking about is same-sex marriage, what we understand today as homosexual orientation. He's not talking about any of those conversations. He's talking about an ancient Hellenism, which bore a particular kind of fruit. And as one example, one example of what he's talking about here is the, we're going to put a link in your show notes to the Wikipedia article here. It's pederastry. And pederastry was the practice, uh, it was a very common practice. It was considered the status quo among middle-class, typical Roman citizens. And part of like Roman law said it was illegal for a woman to be on top during sex. Sexual intercourse for the Roman culture between man or woman or anybody or anything was all about dominance. It was all about penetration. It was about who's penetrating who. And so part of becoming a man in the Roman culture was about learning how to penetrate. And so part of your mentorship, part of being raised up to be a masculine man was learning what it meant to penetrate. And you learned that by being penetrated as a boy. So very, very common, like I said, not everybody, but status quo is almost every middle-class male child was at some point some older male gentleman's boy. He was his mentor and he taught him all kinds of things. I'm assuming even good things about life, but he also taught him some really destructive, screwed up, horribly sexually abusive things. That's what Paul is addressing here between men and between women and the horrible dysfunction of Roman inappropriate sexuality. 
He's not addressing the kind of arguments we have today about a monogamous, same-sex marriage and an orientation and mental and emotional. It's just not even the same conversation. So, Marty, are you saying? I'm not. I'm not. Nor am I going to. I'm not going to sit on this podcast and try to unpack the conversation about homosexuality. Our listeners come from a wide, wide swath of church fellowships uh, and experiences. And your church fellowship has a stance, I'm sure, on these different things. And there are different ways. to under- I am not going to sit here on a podcast and try to fix that. And if you write me an email, please just don't, because I'm not going to do it via email either. Um, I'm not going to try to explain what's going on or unpack those. There's plenty of wonderful books out there. There's plenty of great research. Do it on your own. Do it as a fellowship. Do it somewhere else. We're not going to try to unpack that here. Have I dealt with that? Can, like, Did I do that? Okay, Brent. Sure. 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 I'm not saying yes. I'm not saying no. I'm not saying up. I'm not saying down. I'm not... I'm not coming to a conclusion here on that topic. What I am telling you is we we typically pull this passage out of context. Now, there's some other passages. I'm not going to talk about those. This passage in Romans is being pulled out of context typically in those conversations because Paul is addressing a pagan Hellenism, and they're two separate conversations. The Bible doesn't have the same understanding of orientation that we have today in 2019, 2020. It's, it has a completely different understanding of sexuality. So we can't project those two things onto each other. So, whew, okay, Brent, keep reading. Let's get out of that. <laughs> Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. All right, so Paul's, Paul talks to group number one. Group number one is pagan, Hellenistic, just Hellenistic pagans. Like, uh, sinful Gentiles, as Paul referred to it. And like, he's talking about a culture of just sinfulness. And Paul says their measuring rod doesn't work for them. They say they're the measure of all things. Well, the fruit of that measuring rod is anything but sweet. It is bitter. It is poisonous. It is horrible. All right. But now Paul's going to turn his attention to another group because there are some Gentiles who have been rescued maybe years ago, Brent, from such thinking. And they have started to see themselves as quite spiritually evolved. And so Paul quickly turns his attention. Notice how Paul is addressing all the division, like all the division that exists in this. Well, is it this group? Is it this group? Is it that group? Like, which group is it? Who's on top? And Paul turns his attention now to group number two. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. 
God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So Paul says that just because they are better than those people, like group two, so group one is pagan, whether they're brand new converts or whatever, they're coming out of a pagan, sinful lifestyle. And group number two is like, well, I don't live that way anymore. They're still Gentiles. They're not Jewish. They don't follow Torah. They've been set free by the freedom we talked about in Galatians. But but they're, they're, they're thinking to themselves, well, at least I'm not them. And Paul says, but your measuring stick doesn't work either. And that's where he's going to turn next. Go ahead and keep reading. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Christ, through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Is that my gospel again that Paul talks about? Okay, so Paul said, it sounds like Paul says something totally different than he said in Galatians, because it sounds like he said, uh, those who are obedient find righteousness. But what Paul is doing is Paul's addressing this worldview of Paul's not saying that's that's the truth of the gospel. What Paul is saying, by your own logic, you're going to find the same condemnation. Because if you think that you're better than those people because you follow some new understanding, some new way, then the problem is, is you're going to find the same condemnation that they do because your measuring stick doesn't work either. If you're, into, if, if you're willing to recognize some better way, quote unquote, that way now becomes your new law. And only those who obey this new law will be justified by it. And the problem is, is do they obey this new law, Brent? No. They don't. We all have the same problem as human beings. None of us obey the laws. None of us fulfill our own measuring sticks perfectly. We all fall short. That's Paul's greater point. If the person ever transgresses their own understanding, which we all do, then we can't claim to be in a much better situation than the pagans. They still have this haunting insecurity a conscience that bears witness, Paul says, to the fact that they fall short of their own self-imposed standard. But then there's a third group, Brent. There's a third group which might be sitting there thinking, well, at least we have this figured out. At least we are above all this Gentile nonsense. They, they think that they're, they're above this pitiful Gentile crew, and that's these new Jewish believers that have come back home. But the same line of thinking applies to them as well when you think of Torah this law that's been given by God. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, 
God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, so Paul says, uh, how does your, so you have Torah as your measuring stick, and you think that's great because that's God's measuring stick. But Paul says, you have the same problem. Do you, do you follow this measuring stick? Like, do you ever fall short? Of course you do. Go ahead. Keep going. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Okay, so so Paul comes off of this and says, uh, you have the same problem of measuring sticks. Now, when we teach this, Brent, we teach Romans as this lofty, transcendent theological idea that like all are sinners, which may or may not be true. That is not actually Paul's point here. Paul's point is that we are not all abstract theological category sinners. Paul's point is not one of you groups has any more claim to the gospel, has any more claim to God's love, has any more claim to obedience, has any more claim to righteousness. Because remember, we got started, Brent. Paul said, we're going to talk about a righteousness that comes from where? From faith. From faith. Righteousness that comes from God through faith. So this righteousness isn't going to come from us because we can't actually produce that grade of righteousness, no matter which group we're a part of. We all have the same problem. He's not making some theological case for the sinfulness of all human beings. It may or may not be true. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, you think you're better than the Gentiles? You're not. You Gentiles think you're better than those Gentiles? No, you're not. We all have the same problem. That's what grace speaks to. Grace speaks to the same problem. He's not making a large theological treatise here. He's simply trying to talk to this blended family that th- this group thinks they're better. This group thinks that they're better. This group thinks they're better. And Paul's like, no, n- none of us are better. We're all humans. Go ahead. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Okay. This question kind of might've come out of Galatians too. Well, great. If we've all been set free for freedom, like why would I eat kosher? Like, why would I be Jewish? Like, what's the whole point here? Go ahead. Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Oh, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. That is our call as a Jewish people. We are keepers of Torah. That that is our call. That is our role. What a beautiful role to have, especially in the midst of these Gentiles. Go ahead. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Probably a remez there. Just saying. Not going to stop here, but we have the tools. We gave you the tools in session three. Probably a remez. Go ahead. It's out of Psalm 51. Check it out. But if our unrighteousness... Psalm 51, shut up. (laughs) David, (laughs) Psalm 51. David just being encountered about his sin by Bathsheba. Now, David, David, is he he a Jew, Brent? He certainly is. Oh, so I wonder if the Jews who understand the remez, I wonder if they're going, oh, yeah, yeah, we understand sin. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Just couldn't help yourself. Couldn't help it. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using human argument. It's in parentheses. Yep. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? 
Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. So Paul says, forget that nonsense. If you're thinking, and again, I think this passage here, frankly, in my, this is just my opinion. I think this beginning here of chapter three kind of speaks against this Western legal, contractual, theological understanding of theology. Like we always have this like transactional and it's all built upon reason. And if this, then this, and this, then this. And I think Paul's like, guys, there is a way that we have been called to walk here. It's not about your systems of theology. Because when we have our wonderful systematic theology, these 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 uh, uh, rebuttals that Paul is kind of addressing here are really true. If this, then this. If this, then this. But Paul's like, but it's not about those, like, Paul's not rebutting systematic theology. It doesn't exist at this point in history. But Paul's like, no, it's not about that logical reasoning of this, then this, and this, then this. It's about a way that God has called us to walk in. A struggle that a Roman audience, a very Greek, very absolutely. Like, I mean, you're in the center of the Greek system here in, in Rome. Like this is this is a big struggle for them. One hundred percent. All right, let's finish this thing up. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it is written. Okay, now before we even read it, Brent, look at what's happening in your Bibles. If you guys have your Bibles open. All of a sudden, what do you see when you look at this, Brent? This is indented. This is indented, which means it's quotation. It's a but. It's it's quotations. And how many footnotes here? Like what? What passage is this quotation from? What book of the Bible is this one quotation from? Oh, there's six different footnotes. Ah, there are six different footnotes. So Paul is doing something known as stringing pearls in the rabbinic world. Paul's taking six different quotations, six or more, or more. Well, six different remezes. Six footnotes, but there are actually multiple. Ah. Like the first footnote is uh, Psalms 14 and 53 and Ecclesiastes 7. Then you have Psalm 5. You have Psalm 140. Right. You have Psalm 10, uh, specifically out of the Septuagint, apparently. Isaiah 59. Yes. Psalm 36. Like there's okay. a, a lot of passages to look at here. Absolutely. So what Paul is doing here is he's purposely stringing pearls. He's choosing passages because his quotation of all these passages in this particular order, yes, it reads on the surface level like a wonderful statement. But underneath it all, there is a Jewish sermon going on in the way that he's quoting remezes. And he's going, remez, 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 remez. And if you follow those remezes back to their original source, you realize that Paul is making a case and preaching a sermon underneath it all saying, Jews, you should know this. Because did the Gentiles get the remezes, Brent? No. They don't get it. Dude, what about the Gentiles who have been walking in the faith? Nope, not even them. Not even them. Like, they might have a hunt, um, but they don't know. The answer to that is no. Like, they might know that he's doing that, but they're going to need that Jewish perspective, the keepers of Torah, to go, oh, man, that was brilliant. What Paul just did there, he just quoted this psalm, followed it up with this prophet, and then this psalm, and that psalm, but then he followed it up with that prophet, and then ended with that psalm. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And he's doing something underneath the surface of it all. And we've given you the tools in session three to know how to do that. So go ahead and read this without pulling apart all the room, Mrs. Brent. Just read it all the way through like we always do. And I'm just going to start back at the beginning just so we like emphasize that he is sure. talking to Jews here. Yep. He says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just wondering, Brent, we can say this much about those remezes. Who's the audience of all of those statements? All these people who no one does righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. All have turned away. Um, their, th- their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Who are all these about? The Jews. Interesting. So Paul is re- he's doubling down on his statement. Don't point at the Gentiles and say, they're sinners. We know what sin is. It's in our own story. Go ahead. And these are, I mean, the Psalms, like, these are the songs of the Jewish people as they're sitting around in captivity. They're like, this is us. This is who we are. Absolutely. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. All right. No one will be declared righteous. What was the word we used for that, Brent? Justified. Justified. No one will be justified. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Paul says, we know from our past, nobody's getting justified by that because we all fall short of that measuring stick. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So he's going to keep going. He's not done yet, but he's just made the case. Nobody gets to look down on anybody here. Group one, group two, group three. We all have the same problem. So everybody just calm down about who's better than who. Because there's nobody that's better than who. So now we get to dive in in our next episode, Brent, of where this righteousness, if righteousness doesn't come from us, because we always fall short of whatever measuring stick we use, where is this righteousness going to come from? That's where we're going to go next. Well, that wasn't too bad. We pulled that off in uh, possibly a shorter amount of time than we might have expected. Absolutely. I'm pleased. 40 minutes? Sign me up. All right. (laughs) We do have six more episodes to cover Romans. So again, I will ask you to hold your questions about Romans until we complete the entire set of, of episodes but if you have any other questions or thoughts uh, feel free to get in touch go to bamondiscipleship.com uh, you can get a hold of marty on twitter twitter at marty solomon i'm at eibcb and thanks for joining us on the bama podcast today we'll talk to you again soon